Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Thanks so much everyone for listening and just hope you're keeping really, really well just now. I am delighted to be joined today by Kim Woods. There's a story here, which is that we were meant to record this several months ago and um, things got in the way and then life got in the way and the Olympics got in the way. So we're laughing that we're finally getting around to this about nine months after (laughs) we were meant to. So I'm really excited to have her on the pod tonight. Kim's had this amazing journey to where she is now. She holds five European titles from junior to senior level. She's been a multiple World Cup medalist, as well as having been team world and European champion. She has 52 international medals so far and has her eyes set on just a few more. We first met in passing, I think, at the GB senior selections in 2019, which was also the first selection for the Tokyo Olympic Games. Um, So it feels very apt that we're coming back to that point. If you ever want to know what a relaxed athlete looks like, it's when you see them catching video of young paddlers the day before, encouraging them along and sticking on Instagram that night. I can't wait to get into this conversation, so I'm just delighted to have her along to share a journey. Thank you so much for your time, Kim. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Okay, so by way of warming us both up today and the regular feature on the pod, if you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world, where would you go? Who would you go with? And what would you do? So more recently, this one place keeps popping up on a lot of my social media and on the TV, which is kind of scary, but it's just New Zealand. I'd love to go there. I've never been before and the whole scenic atmosphere is just beautiful and I'd love to experience something like that. And I think I must take my partner. He's been there before in 2013, before I'd met him. And I think that's definitely a trip for the future though that we'd both love to go on. It's a good one. I think we've had New Zealand before. I would be with you on that one. I think that would be an amazing trip. I also think it's very noble that you're taking your partner with you. And um, the previous guest on the podcast, Matt, would take Tim Peake to the Antarctic. <laughs> he wouldn't take his partner, apparently. So I think that's very noble of you to take your partner with you. Okay, listen, there is so much we could talk about. So um, let's, just, let's just dive in. Could you maybe tell us a bit about your early sport experiences? So where did it all begin for you? And yeah, kind of how did that progress? I um, loved sport as a child, no matter what it was, as long as I was moving and being good at it, um, I'd enjoy it and just throw myself into anything. I got into canoe slalom through my grandparents and when I was younger I used to watch old recordings of my auntie racing. She won a silver medal at the Junior Worlds in 94 so this is like a year before I was born and I watched a a recording of her race and I used to dress up in all the gear and just sit there in the front of the TV watching so now I was like I really want to do it it looks so unique and different I was like yeah I want to do that I want to beat her and kind of competitive child and they said as soon as you can swim uh, we'll get you in a boat Um, a few years later I was fortunate that my school in year three so 2003-2004 had a scheme where they took the kids swimming you had to pay like a pound or something like that and they just learned how to swim, just more like safety than anything else. And uh, I went back to my grandparents with my 50 metre badge and said, Look, I can swim now. They thought I'd forget about it, but I didn't. So they thought, right, we'll take her down to the local canoe club, rugby canoe club. And I learned the basic skills in the swimming pool and went onto the, the reservoir they go to in the summer and kind of kicked off from there. I went to my first race and I won it. I was the only one there, but I absolutely loved it. And yeah, the thrill of going as fast as you can through gates no matter how many times it might have took me to go through those gates um I absolutely loved it and was hooked 
that isn't what I thought you were going to say as how you got into sport in the first place. I mean, that is literally hilarious that your 50 meter badge got waved in front of your grandparents saying, come on, it's paddling time. I think that's just, um, that's brilliant. I'm sure they're very, very proud that you still remember that story. Okay. Amazing. So got you competitive child, long as active and good at it. You were in, could swim, been on a reservoir, would won our first race. Doesn't matter how many competitors there were, you won. At some point, you journeyed your way into the GB setup. What was the journey like from that initial spark of, oh my goodness, I love this sport, into, I guess, beginning to race internationally? It went quite quickly. When I think back to it, how many years I've been a part of the GB programme compared to the years I haven't, uh, they outweigh each other quite a lot. So, yeah, I, I started paddling in 2004, first racing in 2005, and then in 2008, it took me three years just to get to the top division. I just turned 13. I was pretty young. Uh, it was quite a long time ago now. And the next couple of years, I was just kind of building, did like junior selection, like demonstration runs. So I didn't actually race it um, until I was old enough. As soon as I was old enough, I was able to race. And I didn't make the team the first year. It was 2010. There was a lot of, like, a lot of junior girls around. But I myself wasn't quite ready for that anyway. But the following year like the spot was all mine for the taking and and managed to make the team and went to my first race and then made finals which was a huge achievement for me to make the finals and then made the criteria to meet the GB squads for the winter training and just the whole program itself and get to get funding as well so from that I've been on the program since the end of 2011 I moved away from my coach previously who was part of the international talent squad and been working with Craig Morris ever since so I've been working with Craig for 10 years now and yeah it wasn't till like I don't know about 2014 when I had a little bit of a slip didn't make the team and had some time away from kind of the program as such and brought my love back to it and yeah, going from strength to strength and moved down to Lee Valley being part of a whole performance centre was so new to me I was always traveling. I lived in, um, I lived in rugby, so I had to travel to Nottingham normally. But then Lee Valley was built and yeah, moved down here in, at the end of 2014. And yeah, I've seen my paddling get so much better and more results came from that. I love the way you tell that story. That's still like childlike enthusiasm that you obviously had when you were younger. It's, it's kind of still there, which is just great to hear. I'm interested if there were any high points, I guess, in that journey, because it sounds like what I love about the story is it began with, it's good for people to listen to, actually. I didn't make the team first time. I think people think people who are really good like you, everything was easy, but of course it wasn't. Actually, there were bits along the road you had to work hard at. What were some of the high points on that, I guess, that journey up, up until and the point you just described there? There are quite a few, quite a few key points. I remember in back in 2008, I got excluded from my school for just being in trouble and then I thought no I really need to get my head down everyone else in canoeing is kind of doing the ed whole educational thing um, I didn't like school but I thought I need to get my head down and that's when I started to get more structure and training and like really putting my head in gear and then making the teams probably quite a key bit and making the program it was the first time I had like a, a proper coach and being part of such a, a wider community like nationally program wise and yeah working with Craig it was a new coach it was exciting it was like oh I don't know how it'll be and be training with a gr another group of girls as well always kind of you know, here and there with my training partners 
And then I think the next key bit was probably 2014. It was my first year of under 23. And I remember having a conversation with Craig and saying how, like, it's going to be different because things kind of came easy to me whilst I was a junior because I was very skilled. Um, my white water skills were very good and I was strong and just like, yeah, my, te- my technique was like kind of above a lot of other people. So that got me quite far and got me the results I did. But under 23s was a whole nother level. You're competing with people who are 23 and you're an 18 year old, like you got five years. So that first year was, is quite a big hit. Um, of not making the team in my C1 class because I do two classes. Didn't make the team in the C1 class, only just made it in my K1 class. And we went to Australia, which is incredible, to race the under-23 worlds there. I didn't make the final and it was quite sad. <laughs> but that summer, I was kind of camping on my own. It was I had my own kind of freedom. I, like only been driving for about six months and felt this whole new level of being in- independent. I lived off pasta and meatballs cooked on a stove in like the Nottingham campsite. I was there three days a week, then at home. And I was doing that throughout the whole of summer. And then I won my actual first national race not long after that. And then moved down to Hertfordshire for uni. Uh, I was making all these decisions and I felt very grown up. And then that winter was probably one of the best winters I'd had up to that point of training. Then the following year, the selection was pretty tough, but from not making the C1 team the year before I'd made the senior team in both of my classes which is the first time I'd done that so I knew I'd made the right choice um moving down here and yeah kind of just kind of kept things going I think the next key point was probably I guess the Olympic selection year (laughs) like it's such a big thing that like gets built up so much and you learn a lot about yourself and that winter like 2018 to 2019 that winter was such a strong winter for me. I learned a lot about myself and me and Craig kind of pressed the reset button. You know, we'd been working for like seven years by that point and yeah, we had to press the reset button and almost start from not day one, but kind of regather ourselves a bit and kind of see like button head a bit and things were getting a bit frustrating. So we were like, let's get everything out of the table, honest, open conversations and be vulnerable. And he was doing some coach development stuff at the time as well and I think we both grew in that winter and it made such a big difference going into 2019 and the selection and then obviously got selected and then the games and yeah COVID hit and yeah a lot of key points since 2018. I mean there's like an hour's worth of questions just appearing to me there so yeah thanks for that. (laughs) I definitely want to circle back around to that conversation with the mighty Simo at some point. Because he's, yeah, he's talked about this with me before, like those conversations that he needed to have that, that he recognized that he needed to grow as well as, as a coach. It wasn't just about the athletes. He needed to do some work as well. So can we just go back in time a bit? If that's okay. You talked about 2008, yeah. you got excluded from school and something then happened that you said, I need to, I need to get my head together basically and sort this out. I'm just interested in like how powerful sport was for you at that stage that like this isn't work. You need to leave, leave the school. What was it about sport that gave you a new direction, I guess? So my first question. Sport kind of helped with just being a bit more like level-headed and not being able to... With sport, you can quite be explosive straight away. I was taking that into my school, which was probably not 
the best thing to do. Um, so I was trying to save all of that for canoeing and working out and kind of things like that. But like it also kind of taught me how to communicate with other people as well as kind of with myself and my own mind. And like I, I remember so vividly sitting in that in the principal's office and he told me I had to, had to take two days off. And at first it was kind of funny because it was two days before half term. So I was like, oh, I'll just get two extra days of holiday. But kind of in that kind of trip home, because I lived quite about half hour away from my school, there's quite a lot of time to think. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. I can't go back to my canoeing friends and tell them what happened because it's almost really embarrassing. And everyone else in kind of in canoeing was quite smart and like loved going to school and just kind of all that. And I felt the odd one out a little bit. And I kind of wanted to fit in so I wanted to like get my head down at school and get through it and like my parents never went to university and that was kind of my goal so once I kind of knew it was possible and knew if I put my head down and and get to it I would be able to get through school without getting in trouble again obviously it it wasn't a quick fix Um, I was getting in trouble here and there but sport really helped to have that release but also the communication skills I had from it and the skills of resetting after mistakes in my paddling in a race run helped with just being able to take that to my normal life and just kind of breathe, take a moment, what's going on. And yeah, I've, I'm still learning today, like 15 years later. And yeah, it's incredible what I've learned from sport and what, how that's helped me, shaped me as a person outside of it. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's really interesting because people always talk about, oh, you know, skills you learn as an athlete, you can apply that rising through exams or in life but you never get these great examples that you've given there about like well actually learning to reset in canoe slalom super important right you know stuff stuff goes wrong nothing ever goes to plan go to reset and actually you're talking about that wasn't for you just about paddling that was also maybe about you growing up and becoming an adult and all the rest of it i wonder if we could fast forward a little bit because i'm getting the sense of this like precociously talented person who sets the bar incredibly high for yourself and is incredibly successful. 2015, you talk about things didn't quite go to plan. I'm wondering, are you able to just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So in 2015, um, it was my first year of uni, whole independent kind of thing and finding my feet. I joined clubs here and there and I joined an America football sports club at um, at the university and I absolutely loved it until I ended up rupturing my ACL and it was maybe like a month or two before senior selection so it was like damn I've, I've done something here and I remember feeling really gutted when my physio and the doctor told me that I'd had to have an operation on it. I was like I've never broken a bone in my life. I've never had to have an operation. I was like, this is a whole new territory for me. And went through that season without my ACL because it wasn't a good time to have the operation there and then because it would take a couple of months to recover. And with me doing two classes, it was like, let's just go through the season without it. And it was obviously um, at the end of that year in October, it was Olympic selection for Rio. And I had a little bit of a chance, but the other two old, the older girls were very much buying it out head to head. So it was also senior team selection. So I had to race anyway, um, made the team again. And then literally the following week had my operation. And it's the first time I couldn't do anything. Like most nights I wouldn't even go upstairs to my own bed. I had, had to sleep on the sofa. I was very much kind of bed bound. 
um, which was such a shame because I, I'm such an active person and a lot of my issues that kind of come to my head is I distract myself with doing other things, but I couldn't do anything. So I was stuck there with my own thoughts. You know, days are going darker and I lived in a house full of canoeists. They were all going training and I was stuck in, stuck in the house. I had to rely on other people to go to uni and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a very good time actively. Um, and mentally, I think, yeah, just thoughts came to me and unfortunately started, uh, self-harming. I couldn't quite today pinpoint exactly what was going on in that time, but yeah. A lot of dark thoughts were coming in, kind of thinking I was useless and not being able to do anything. And yeah, it wasn't a very, a very nice time for me. And self-harming was my way of getting out and releasing that because that's the only thing I, in my head that I thought I could do. And then I still started, started training again, but the self-harming didn't stop because I almost got addicted to it. And it was kind of like a thing f- for me to do out of boredom as well. And I kept it quite, quite secret until... I couldn't anymore and it was starting to become obvious that I was trying to hide something like I'd wear long sleeves in the gym I'd stay very hidden and yeah something was going on and Craig knew about it because he had heard from other people that they'd seen something or he'd seen something and yeah my behavior was very much different to how it was and yeah he sat me down um, in a meeting room I remember it I think I remember it very differently because um, it felt like he was on the completely other side of the room to me. But that's probably how I felt um, <laughs> in that moment in time when I look back. And he said, like, we've seen this. I'm, I haven't got the skills to help you with it. Let's talk to the psych. And then it was kind of the same conversation, like, like she didn't have the skills to deal with that kind of situation. So then I said yes to seeing someone else outside of the sport. And probably one of the best decisions I've ever made um, because just seeing someone else it's someone a stranger to talk to even though at first I absolutely hated it I felt like I was being judged and when I think back to it it's it was interesting because the the guy that I saw said that you don't need to go on medication and I was like okay I was kind of expecting to in my head I was like oh maybe I'm making it all up maybe I'm just being stupid that but then ended up seeing someone else um lovely lady and yeah started um behavioral therapy and yeah kind of went from there and that's uh that was the story of 2015 <laughs> yeah thanks for sharing i just um i just have so much admiration for you yeah we've done a whole load of um additional mental health training at work and um did a bit on self-harming and of course it's like people think it's a it can be a cry for help of course it's a coping strategy right so you were using that to it sounded like to help you cope with what was going on for you now most people i think don't talk about this so i i have unbelievable amounts of respect for you for talking about this because you didn't just own it uh you actually thought that you needed to help other people understand that it's not just you and in 2020 you were part of what i thought was a brilliant article on the BBC and I'll put a link in, in the podcast where you talked about your experiences and going through that. I just wonder if you could talk about what kind of what led you to make that decision that you wanted to to shine a light on this. Yeah, so when that article came out, it was obviously just under five years after I first started having these issues um, kind of brought to light and it did take probably took three months for the conversation to be happening like is this really what we want to do 
because a lot had happened since like that first that first meeting of me seeing someone because I then saw a further two other people in 2016 17 18 and it, I hadn't seen anyone since before 2018 and, and hadn't self-harmed for a really long time and we didn't want this me talking about that issue on such a public platform to bring up anything else and you never know how it's going to go down with with the public but i know that my reasoning behind doing it was much stronger and so many more people and more athletes now are talking about their mental health around sport and saying like you can't hide away from it with sport like you need to kind of sort it out and um a gymnast now wilson he he did a youtube documentary the silent battle and i mean his issues were very much different to mine but the whole kind of stigma around it is the same and he helped me kind of realize that i'm not alone i went hang on like that i want other people to realize they're not alone and i did it and what the conversation was kind of strange because it felt like i was just having a normal conversation just like i am <laughs> i am with you now and i know 3 years ago i wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to do it and I almost had to remind myself, actually, this this is going to go out <laughs> kind of into the public domain. And yeah, it was a really amazing thing for me to do because even today I'm still getting other athletes come to me and say how amazing that article was. And on the day that it came out, I was so overwhelmed with the responses. I was just like, well, I didn't realise how many people would pay attention to it. And a lot of people that I knew who are, I'd say, close to me didn't even know either so it was amazing to do it and that has definitely been one of my proudest moments that I've done in my life yeah I'm not surprised that's one of your proudest moments yeah and I just would echo what you said there that in a really nice way you, you became part of a conversation that you'd have conversations with athletes and coaches and they say oh yeah it looks like Kim Wood shared on online and you became almost like a like, an, like a key to open up conversations and saying, well, Kim's completely normalised this now because she was so honest and you shared it very sensitively as well, which is really good. Yeah, it was just, it was massive. And I hope you know how massive that that one decision was to say, we're going to share this. And yeah, it was it was incredible. So I'm it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast because I was like, wow, someone who's got the confidence and the ability to, to own that stuff, I, I want to talk to them. So yeah, just I'm on behalf of the sporting community, I think you've done a lot of young people a lot of good. So yeah, thank you for sharing. No, thanks. It t- it takes a lot of people to kind of make me feel like that though. Like the the journalist I spoke to, uh, Nick Hope from the BBC, he was a massive support in it. And without him and and people in British Canoe and without Craig like, and my psych, I wouldn't have been able to do that without them. And again, it did take a couple of months for us to just be a hundred percent certain that I really wanted to do this and I did so I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Well I think we're all very grateful that you did. I think it's also really nice for people listening at home that before this podcast started I, I noted that you've got some writing on your arms and obviously you talked about covering your arms a few years ago and now there's no way you wouldn't want people to see those Olympic rings on your arm right which is great isn't that a nice story which allows me to segue beautifully into the fact that you of course did qualify for the games and I'm just wondering if you could give us a bit of a sense of what that journey was like into the games obviously COVID and everything else very much in the way and just what that first Olympic experience was like for you like what would you take away from that? I think everyone's first Olympic experience is is different, but some things are the same. But obviously, this 
this Olympics very different to any other Olympics that's been. And like for me and also the rest of the Canadian team, it was all of our first Olympic Games. So we're all being chucked into this environment brand new. And it went very quickly to start with going on from our senior worlds in the back end of September 2019, a week and a half later, we were announced and we're off to Japan straight away uh, for the Olympic test event and being able to experience the culture. And thankfully we went then to like go sightseeing and kind of experience it then as um, this year we weren't allowed to do any of that. But yeah, it was going really quick and um, had good winter training into the new year. I actually got a bit ill over into the new year. Part of me think it was COVID, but um, you never know. And yeah, so New Year's happened and I was slowly getting back to it. It took me about a month to get back into it. And we were in um, Alain in, in near Dubai. And this is when COVID was starting to happen. We're like, hang on, no, this is actually going to be a bit of a thing here. And we're away and we're like, do we need to go home now? It was just a bit touch and go of what was going to happen. And we came home and then that was like end of Feb and then a couple of weeks later it got pretty serious and then obviously we're in lockdown and I had to press the reset button and it was almost nice in a way because we hadn't spent that much time at home and then turns out we spent a lot of time at home and my home became quite a sanctuary it kind of used to be a place where I'd just come home eat and sleep and didn't really feel like home but last year Covid kind of made it feel like home which was quite nice and I got to spend more time with my partner as well, which was good. But yeah, being selected was amazing. And there was like a few good like things I was looking forward to, which was like the kitten out, getting there, being escorted through and the Olympic Village, the food hall, all things that come with the Olympic Games. And it was very different, obviously, all the masks. And we were out there actually quite early for a pre-games training camp with the whole of the canoeing kind of bubble. Um, so we were there quite early, we were there at the start of July, so we got to climatise quite well, and those two weeks before were very, very hot. I'd like Not even the heat chamber would have prepared me for that. <laughs> like We went into the heat chamber, but yeah, being out there was very hot, but we had such a good team out there, like our Andy, he, he was there with like ice buckets with like loads of ice in, with towels in, so the towels were frozen and we're throwing them over our heads after we get to the bottom of the course, and the water was like bath water, so you couldn't cool yourself down with with the water, whereas normally it's like pretty cold and refreshing, but um, it was like a bath. It was horrendous, and we had umbrellas, and yeah, it was pretty tough. And the aircon kept like breaking up and um, in the team tent, so it was pretty tricky um, at times. But when it came to the race, it, the weather kind of calmed down a little bit, which was quite nice and. Yeah, obviously the whole racing experience, we, we were going to have crowds and then we weren't. It was so up and down, you didn't know what was happening. The opening ceremony as well was crazy quiet. There was only about 16 of us that actually went and four of us were the canoeists. And strangely, we were, me and uh, Mallory, frankly, and we were sharing with the weightlifting girls and they all decided to come to the opening ceremony. So we had kind of like a flat opening ceremony it was kind of bizarre like we knew kind of everyone there and I think the boxer Fraser Clark was there like pretty and obviously Hannah Mills carrying the flag as well having those like the rowers I can't remember his name I feel really bad for not remember his name but those both like holding the flag there and we we waited for two hours underneath the uh, Olympic stadium we didn't see any of the show 
because we were waiting there and thankfully we were quite near the start compared to like the rest of the countries um, behind us. Like there were still countries waiting on the outside of the stadium whilst we were <laughs> on our way home. But we yeah, walked in and then walked straight back out onto the bus and back to the back to the village. Otherwise we'd had to stay there for another two, three hours and we wanted to be in bed. So it yeah, it was it was a weird experience, the whole ceremony and then literally within two days we were racing and no crowds it was I almost didn't notice it because we're not a big sport anyway we don't normally have huge crowds so um, I didn't quite notice it and the commentary um, we had Andy Maddock who's British on the commentary so it was kind of normal in that sense but yeah the whole thing was it was so crazy and so surreal I almost couldn't keep like keep up with it it's kind of yeah as I expected you were going to say just everything was a bit weird right and um yeah just the stories you tell of these like random things that have to happen because of COVID and everything else. On to the racing, those people who have seen the results and so on, I'm imagining a mixed bag for you. What's the kind of sentiment that you have now thinking back on the racing in Tokyo? It wasn't until like a month or so after where I'd finally like, not even a month, maybe two months after where I'd actually reviewed it and came more settled with it. Um, I came 10th, but like I made the final, it was incredible meeting the being the final and the whole race itself was kind of like bizarre to watch and be a part of because if there's only one person from each nation, it's almost like an easier field compared to like a world championships where you've got three boats per nation and I knew that I was capable of, of getting a medal and I would have been in contention like after looking at the results on, on the day, I'm like, I could have won that. And it is frustrating looking back to it. But it does make me hungry for more. But as as athletes who didn't do well would say, but yeah, I felt really good. I'd I was I think I was sixth going into the final, and with some mistakes in my run, and I was feeling really confident, probably a bit too confident. That I had so much adrenaline in me, and I just went absolute guns blazing at the start. I I look back to it. I looked rushed. I looked like. It almost didn't look as bad as it felt either, which was really interesting because I have had runs like that before in the past and I thought I'd moved away from that. And it was just like a constant reset after mistakes were constantly happening and I was kind of thinking of home a little bit and I'm like, oh, like this is it, like this is over kind of thing and completely lost my head towards the bottom end of the run and just wanted to finish and... There's a there's a photo of me kind of holding my paddle and like you can tell I'm trying to hold it in as I like cross the finish line and yeah it was pretty tough to hold it in and then I just couldn't I put my head in my hands I couldn't hold it in and then like I'm really thankful I haven't seen any footage of of like the live broadcast feed because it will just be me in tears but there was a moment where I went to the side and I heard my teammate Adam was there and there was just something that was really comforting about that and I was like I'm not alone it's okay and that was just kind of repeated in my head it's like it's okay I'm not alone it's like it's it's all right I'm still here (laughs) I'm still loved kind of thing and then Mallory came over and then of course Craig came over and then he, he kind of told me to go to the side get away from the cameras kind of thing like go through the boat control and I did spend about 10 and 15 minutes there whilst the race was still happening and all the emotions were happening at the end. Um, I'm still there kind of hiding in the corner, crying and quite upset. But one thing that was really important to me to do was go through the media and almost to let the people at, no, at home know that I was okay, to reassure them that 
I did my best and that's all I could have done. And I had another opportunity to talk my mental, uh, talk about my mental health piece. And like, it's, it's almost like it shows how much strength that I've gained from speaking about that and seeing people and being open and honest and without all of that help. And I ended up actually seeing another therapist back in May just to top up the toolbox, just in case anything kind of came up and and whatnot. And I'm so thankful that I did because without the skills I'd learned in those two months, I wouldn't have been able to deal with what happened at the Olympic Games in that final as well as I did. But yeah, it was such a mixed emotions and took me quite a long time to comprehend what had happened. But I was back home within two days and away from the environment, which was really bizarre. But I was back paddling the next following day. So I knew I was going to be paddling again, no matter what had happened. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I asked that question knowing you probably didn't want to talk about it. But thank you, because it was really, really interesting. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. You might already know this. So at the time of your race in the UK, listened to Radio 2 at the time and Zoe Ball was on and they had just watched your race. And so you made national airways and she's like, I just want to give her a hug. I was like, so you know, you were sort of temporarily quite famous that she was like, I just want to give her a really, really, really big hug because she was amazing. And I was like, there you go. So that's pretty high profile there. Zoe Ball wants to give you a hug. If you ever see her, maybe she can give you a hug if you ever meet her. There you go. What I love most about that story though and I do not know how you did this, is after everything you'd been through and everything you'd done to get there and everything else and the race run that just wasn't as you wanted it to be and like, we've all had that, right? You had the state of mind to say, actually, I've got a piece of camera to do here and I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to get some major airtime here and uh, I'm going to do something that's really important to me and for sport and more than that, young people and everything else. And you said, I'm going to talk about mental health, which obviously became a massive theme through the games. And so I just, yeah, I doffed my cap to you to have the state of mind because, um, yeah, I did endurance sport. And when I finished races and it had gone well, I was so broken physically and emotionally, I couldn't talk to anyone. So I, yeah, amazing. Now, I like to end podcasts uh, when we're getting to a nice happy story to end with. And so you went to the World Championships not that long, actually, after the games. Could you talk us through that um, very tumultuous experience yeah, the World Championship in Bratislava was was an interesting one to begin with. We were kind of in our own COVID secure bubble. They kind of said that we weren't allowed to do the race if we weren't all in a bubble. But we were kind of used to that with the games and stuff. So for us, it wasn't so much of a surprise. But I'd just come, so the week before leaving, I'd reviewed my Olympic race for the first time. And this whole massive weight came off my shoulders and I felt like I was enjoying life again. I was almost forcing myself not to enjoy things. So I felt like I couldn't, but that was done and we were off jet set into Bratislava. We did our first session, went back to a hotel, came back again for an extreme slalom, which a uh, session, which is a new sport that's been introduced for Paris, which is really cool. And on our way back, me and my coach, uh, Craig got into a car accident, pretty nasty one car had kind of t-boned us on a uh, a crossroads uh we had right of way and didn't end up very well for me or craig really bad whiplash i had a pretty pretty badly damaged ankle slash foot and this was a week before the race and i'm like at first i was like just hobbling to the side of the road just thankful to be alive and i put my hands up when the physio came it was like hands up like if I don't race, it doesn't matter. I'm still alive. I'm still okay. Like, we're both okay. That is all that matters. But then my foot started getting a bit better. I ended up having it in like a, a 
back boot thing. Like they, they didn't fully cast it. They just casted the back just to support it because they thought I had a suspected fracture. But it were many scans and MRIs, ultrasound, literally had the lot thrown at me and like hats off to the emergency services there as well. They were there on the scene quick and helped us out. And um, there was one person who sp- spoke English, which was very thankful because it can be quite difficult when you're in, in in a foreign country. But yeah, so like I was so isolated to my room. We had to take more PCR tests because we'd kind of broken the bubble or in hospital kind of thing. And had to have breakfast delivered to our room I was sharing with Fiona Penny she had to move out so it was it was kind of like things are so thrown up in the air from one and once we were allowed out I was still kind of isolated from the rest of the team just to kind of make sure um, precautions and things started to get better with my foot it was quite funny the next day I was basically in a wheelchair getting my food at lunch in front of everyone must I say like all the nations um from slalom and also wild water racing as well because it was their world championship so a little bit embarrassing going in on a wheelchair and then I ended up kind of on crutches and then just on one crutch and just hobbling around so I'm very thankful for my body for being able to recover quickly to be able to race and then I was back in the boat within like four days and it was like oh you know what maybe maybe I could race um so as soon as that was in my head it was like right I am racing I am doing every race and I ended up doing every race and our first race was the, the our team runs and we were going in as uh reigning European champs from uh this year and also the world champs in from 2019 so we were like we're going down as bib one and it was also Fiona's last race as a team um, internationally. So we're like, we want to win this gold for her. Yeah, we did. And it was we won it by like five and a half seconds or something. So it was incredible to come away with the gold medal after what was a roller coaster of a week. And but then it was on to the individual racing. And the the hardest part about with my ankle, it was still pretty bruised, badly bruised, <laughs> and um, thankfully no broken anything. And getting into my C1 position was pretty difficult because you have to be kneeling down, strapped in, like, spray deck on. It, it's like you are fully pinned down to that boat and just getting into that position where my, my foot's flat on the floor was so painful. But then it was individual racing and in my kayak, I, I felt so free. It was like, I'm so thankful to be here. In that start blocks, it was like, I kind of closed my eyes. I was like, I can't believe I managed to get here after the week I've had. And then I just went paddling. It wasn't, I need to win. I need to make a final. It wasn't any of that. And that surprised me. I paddled so freely and like, I really, really enjoyed it. I had on my, my phone a little screenshot and it was just, I want to make myself proud. So when mistakes were happening, reset straight on it. I just wanted to finish that run and feel really proud of myself, um, regardless of what had happened. And I definitely did that. And yeah, the final came and I got into the final with three touches so that's six seconds worth of penalties and it's rare that you get that in a final of a championships so for me to do that it was like oh I've, I've got the speed I've got a chance here and yeah the field in the final went down and went into first it was soon crushed by the girl after me but um I managed to stay up there and got a bronze medal which was my first world's medal and after what had happened it was like an emotional roller coaster I couldn't explain it any better than that and to come out with that with what happened in the week before is yeah hats off to the physio for helping me get into 
any position that I could have um, to be able to race. I was so thankful. Yeah, they definitely earned their money, didn't they, over those days? I can't believe you went from like yeah, definitely. wheelchair to crutches to one crutch to, I'll get in the boat now and just see how this goes. Oh, yeah, I'm on it now. I just love that. I actually got slightly chilled listening to that story of just you like, yeah, do you know what? I'm just going to make myself proud. I'm going to smash this. And I love that. Nice to have a good, positive, uh, happy end to, to just an amazing story. I'm going to attempt to give a bit of a summary, but I just don't know where I'm going to start. Uh, you're going to go to New Zealand, apparently, and you're going to take your partner, which I thought was very noble of you. Um, so good on you. I love that. Just competitive child. Loved sport as long as I was moving and I was good at it. Um, just amazing. And just harassing your grandparents until they took you paddling. I just think that's amazing. And then this, like, yeah, incredibly talented young athlete progressing through at real speed. Value of, sc- like, that gave you at school, gave me a bit more level-headed you talked about this idea of resetting a lot through this conversation. It's obviously a really, really important skill for you and things you, you go with. Yeah, and then obviously the injury, right, which sounds innocent enough. I just injury playing a sport I shouldn't have been playing. But the, the implications of that for you as a person and then like you couldn't move, you couldn't do stuff and you lost a lot of your independence and kind of how that affected your mental health and, and then how you show the resilience to kind of work through that, I think. Amazing. And then, of course, you um yeah had the courage to say I'm going to share this with the world later on I think that, that was amazing I also loved and on another day maybe I should get Craig on the pod and have a conversation with Craig about this the uh, we need to stop butting heads conversation and we need to be a bit more honest a bit more vulnerable I just uh, I think that that's just really wonderful to hear that you both said we both need to grow up here and we need to stop doing this this isn't going to work we're not going to survive Olympic Games especially not one in Covid unless we're on the same page here so I love that and then you got in a car crash and you still won a world championship. Well, you became world champion and you became world championship medalist. That's just unbelievable. If you had any advice for young people, young athletes around mental health, I'm wondering what that might be. I think I've said it before, like in the article I did, it's just don't be afraid to ask for help. And you'll hear that so many times from people who've been through it. And that first step is just all you need to take. And people understand even more so now than they did before. It's, I wouldn't say it's a taboo subject anymore. Some people might think there's a bit of a stigma around it, but yeah, just ask for help and don't be, don't be scared to be vulnerable. You, you learn a lot when you step out of your comfort zone. Thank you very much. I am confident. I mean, you're a well-known figure around the world of sport and on the internet and on the podcast world, but where can people follow you, keep an eye on you, that kind of thing? Um, I'm pretty social on uh, my Instagram, um, Kimberly Woods. It's pretty simple to remember. And I also have a YouTube. If you want to go subscribe to that, that would be lovely. It's been a while since I've put something out, but I documented my, my journey to the games and things like that and a few cool paddling videos on that. But other than that, normal Twitter and kind of things like that. But yeah. Okay, I will add those into the description for the podcast because I suspect people who don't already follow you will be like, need to follow Kim. This is this is going to be good because there's a lot there's a lot more to you than just an athlete in very commas. Um, so I think people want to keep an eye on you. Thank you so much. I was so looking forward to this conversation. It took us nine months to get to this point, but it was so worth it. So thank you very very much for for giving me your time. I'm I'm so grateful. Everybody, keep an eye out for future podcasts and. Of course, hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And in the meantime, everybody, please stay safe.